Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Welcome back to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. Today I've got part one of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. I think this is a very relevant topic, especially given what's going on in the world. And I think uh, we can learn from what happened in our past. And so I wanted to give kind of a quick overview of that. And then we'll be back next time with part two where my buddy Michelle and I get deeper into it and talk about it at length, in length. So let's get into it. Spanish flu pandemic, 1918. The Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 was not the first flu pandemic the United States or the world has ever been through. In 1890, you had an outbreak of what was thought to be influenza, and it was called the Hong Kong flu epidemic. And it swept through the United States with a, a moderate death toll, but a lot of people got infected. And that will lead into why the death rates of the Spanish flu of 1918, the death rates per age group was a little skewed. So we're going to talk about that. But during that first, that 1890 pandemic, you had a doctor by the name of Richard Pfeiffer, who was actually able to isolate and identify the virus that he thought was causing the flu or influenza. It is still commonly referred to today as Pfeiffer's bacillus. But when you take a look at a flu or an influenza virus, they all look like they are wearing a crown, hence the term coronavirus for, for some of them. And they function by way of what we call antigens. Now, all of them have these little spikes around it, and those spikes are what they use to insert their RNA into the cells in your body, and your cells are taken over and immediately become a factory mass-producing these, these viruses because the virus is incomplete. It can't do it, himself, it themselves. So all of them function by way of that, and one of these spikes is known as an antigen, which is a protein body. Now, the influenza vaccine, the influenza virus, is known as an RNA virus, which simply means it's incomplete. Now, a, a virus or anything made of DNA, you know, the good old swirly DNAs that we're used to, can actually replicate themselves. They're complete. There's very little that will ever change in their genetic code except over evolution, you know, thousands of years. RNA is incomplete, and they can easily, easily change their code or their instructions and how the virus operates just in a very short amount of time, which is why the flu virus is so deadly. Uh, we do have one thing going for us that most viruses, when they replicate, they, they're like any other pathogen or any other parasite that latches onto a host, they don't want to kill that host because if that host dies, they die. So they have a tendency to evolutionary go backwards and become less deadly unless a perfect set of circumstances 
happens, and that happened during the flu pandemic of 1918, where we found Pfeiffer's bacillus was found by the doctors fighting that plague in most of the cases of the Spanish flu, but not all of them, which shows that between 1890 and 1918, the virus that creates what we know as influenza has definitely changed and changed a lot because the, those antigens on the outside of a virus is what causes your body's immune system to recognize it as a virus and therefore dispatch things to fight it. When those antigens, and antigens are changed drastically, your body no longer real, realizes it's a foreign body and it takes it a few days to catch up. By that time, the virus has started to replicate itself a lot within your body. The way that a virus changes, it changes in two ways. One is the normal way. It's what we call antigen drift, which is very slight changes over time that we can normally, our body can normally adapt to and keep up with. But when what happens, what happened in the 1918 pandemic, which we will talk about in a moment, you had something known as antigen shift where it changes rapidly, where two, RNA, two incomplete RNA viruses join together into one mega virus, or perhaps some other change, perhaps the fact World War I was going on and you had a lot of soldiers exposed to mustard gas. There has also been some research along those lines that maybe that caused some kind of bizarre mutation. Truth is, we just don't know. In fact, it was just in 2009 when explorers actually went to the Arctic and dug up some Inuits that had died from the 1918 pandemic that were preserved there in the permafrost. And they discovered the actual virus that caused the 1918. And it was a mutation, it seemed, of Pfeiffer's bacillus, but not all Pfeiffer's bacillus. And what they determined was it was most likely an avian flu, though we don't know for sure. And, fun fact, 2009 flu vaccine included an antibody for the 1918 uh, virus. So, that's kind of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with viruses. So, let's get into the actual starts of the pandemic itself. Every single pandemic has had except for this one, has had a designated place that it started and ended. Uh, for example, the current COVID that we're going through, if you're watching this right after it was published, you know that started in the Wuhan province of China, where people have very close proximity to large amounts of animals, usually birds, pigs, reptiles, or other mammals like bats. Now, that is where these viruses tend to have that casual drift where they drift and are able to infect people by jumping from species to species. Now, normally these things like the Hong Kong flu of 1890 very definitely started in the Far East. With the 1918 Spanish flu, no one really knows where it started. There are several theories. The first outbreak of a respiratory infection and most all viruses, all flu viruses, are respiratory viruses. They are specially 
evolved to latch on to the upper respiratory tract of most mammals, which is why mammals like us, monkeys, pigs, the, the tiger at the Bronx Zoo that was recently discovered have cats have very similar respiratory systems and these viruses can easily latch onto those. So that's how you get that drift where it goes from species to species. Now over a long period of time when it shifts, it can jump very fast. So there are several theories on where the Spanish flu of 1918 came from. One of the first was China. In early 1914, 1915, 1916, you had an upper respiratory infection that ravaged the Chinese mainland. And then start of World War I, you had China who was wanting to remain neutral in the war, but then you had Japan who was part of the central powers, the, the bad guys for those of us in the Western world, just for this war, actually threatened to invade China. And so to kind of give them the middle finger, China decided they would enter the war as a non-combatter assistant to the Allied powers. So you had Chinese labor force that was dispatched to help the Allies in Europe. And some of those Chinese laborers went directly to Europe. And it was around that time that a outbreak of an upper respiratory infection happened in France. And then you had some of them to go the other way and kind of go across Canada where they assisted in building a railway system and then were transferred to the coastal city of Halifax where they were then sent to France to help the Allies. And every and a huge percentage of those Chinese laborers were sick with an upper respiratory ailment of some sort. And because there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in Canada, instead of actually quarantining them and taking care of it, they were given castor oil for their coughs and turpentine mixed with petroleum jelly for their chest congestion. Yes, all kinds of weird treatments. You've got to remember, North America, most of the medical professionals in North America were country doctors. All of the nursing care was comfort care. There was very little to know about germ theory. We had just now cracked bacteria and we're starting to understand bacteria, but Viruses were still, we know they existed, we know the existence of Viper's bacillus, but we still did not truly understand what made a virus tick. So we're in the very infancy of germ theory now. So you got to understand doctors in Europe were shifting more to the science, whereas the United States and Canada, still very much country doctors that just wanted to treat your symptoms and get you well. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. So you had them given very rudimentary treatments, kind of kept in secret, and then sent over to help dig trenches and do what they were going to do for the Allies of World War I. The other theory is that it was already in Europe because of an even earlier outbreak in France in 1914 and 15 of a cold-like, flu-like ailment. And then you have the one that has become the most prevalent, even though it's not really proven, is an outbreak in early May, late 1917, early spring 1918 in Haskins County, Kansas, where you had a lot of people come down with a flu-like ailment that was later morphed into what we know as the Spanish flu. And because of the huge preponderance of pig farms in the area, a lot of people 
thought it may have made the jump from swine to people in that area, even though later on from, we, excuse me, the native uh, Alaskan we dug up in late uh, 2008, early 2009, actually showed that it was more of an avian flu. So I'm going to quote a friend of mine who's a researcher, in fact, a family member of mine who's a researcher that said that she doesn't buy the whole Kansas thing. It had to come in from somewhere else. She's more likely to point toward the Chinese laborers coming in to port cities that may have brought it in because she said unless they dug up King Tut in the middle of Kansas there is, or a dinosaur or some ancient virus, she doubts very seriously that a virus of this magnitude, of this deadly force was found in highly sparsely populated Kansas. And I guess there's something to that, though that is one of the more accepted theories about where this virus came from. In that same county in Kansas, you had Fort Riley, one of the major army headquarters, and near it you had Camp Funston, which wasn't very fun during this time, a major army recruitment and training center for troops during World War I, where the first major outbreak of this flu happened, and you had people that over 1,500 troops reported to sick bay within a couple of days of symptoms first appearing, and about 10% of them died. As well as you had medical staff getting sick. As I said, medical care at this time was mainly just to treat your symptoms and keep you comfortable. You also had a great American doctor, and I did take notes on this, by the name of William Welch. who was known to be one of the founders of John Hopkins Medical School. He was one of the major players in the establishment of the Rockefeller Institute, which was one of the major uh, public health research facilities in the United States. He really helped transform country doctors into researchers because he proposed the use of the microscope and things like that. Great guy. Read up on him. Very interesting. But he was one of the first medical people to come to Camp Funston to kind of look at the the carnage that was going on. He was doing autopsies on the soldiers that died and found that their lungs were full of frothy blood, there were tears in their abdominal mus muscles from them coughing so much, and there was just a lot of different stuff that you wouldn't normally see with the flu. In fact, he said, I don't think this is the flu. And he actually advised the camp commanders at Camp Funston to quarantine all the troops and not to send any troops anywhere because that's just going to spread it. However, war mentality overtook common sense, and they were transferred to France, the first shipment after the outbreak, on a luxury liner turned army sh uh, navy ship called the Leviathan. They were sent, 2,000 were crammed into it, and by the time they got there, over 10% of them were dead. Most of them were very sick. A lot of the sailors on that ship mutinied, but yet they were sent right into France. And from that boat landing in France into the trenches of World War I, everything was fought in Doug Pitt's trenches where you had dead men, you had blood, you had feces, you had rats, you had everything you could possibly think of that might just be a cesspool break out and you had this flew run through the American troops, and then later on it affected the British troops and the French troops, and then from prisoners of war, it infected the Germans. In fact, it kind of stopped the German 
spring offensive. They were planning a huge push to try to knock the French back. But instead, their entire army was infected with this flu, and it kind of helped lose them the war. So, and from there, it spread to the civilian population, and you had record death rates in all of Europe. Now, why is it called the Spanish flu? Because Spain was among the hardest hit countries. They were also one of the few countries that were neutral in World War I and were not fighting, so therefore their press were free to report the truth and the facts, whereas the other countries, including good old United States, the war effort took paramount, security took paramount uh, position, and the press was repressed in their ability to report on the flu. So it was buried on the back page of the newspaper. So that's the reason people associate Spain with it is because they were the ones that reported on it. It ravaged Europe, record death rates. Around 100 million people is estimated to have died worldwide from this pandemic, all three waves combined. However, this was the first wave and it was fairly mild. However, it started to ramp up, they believe, because two different flu, perhaps Pfeiffer's bacillus and another flu virus, incomplete RNA virus, as we talked about earlier, joined together and mutated into an even worse virus through antigen shift. Or it perhaps, because a lot of the troops were exposed to mustard gas on a regular basis, then it mutated because of that. In any case, it ramped up and became something that can kill within 12 hours depending on the viral load that is how much virus is in the person how well their immune system operates they could be dead within 12 hours of infection and a lot of people that have studied it says it looked like a combination of influenza a hemorrhagic fever and ebola by the time it was over in fact go back to the doctor at camp funston who said i don't think this is the flu so it ravages Europe and then because of an armistice you had some troops and some international movements start to happen around the world and you had a Norwegian, not Norwegian cruise line, but a cruise ship from Norway actually docked in the United States in New York bringing the second wave of the flu to the United States. From New York it hit Boston and from Boston it hit Camp Devens in Boston, where over 1,500 soldiers were diagnosed. Over 10% of the total population, the total infected died. From there, the troop movements were not stopped. You had troop movements going to camp to another camp, Camp Grant, outside Rockford, Illinois, near Chicago. And from there, 4,100 troops were infected. 5% of them died. While there, Dr. Welch actually called the camp command phone, Charles Hagedorn, and begged him to quarantine the camp, not send any more troops anywhere. He decided that that wasn't in the country's best interest, so he ended up sending over 5,000 troops down to Camp Hancock in Augusta, Georgia. 2,000 of those troops arrived with the flu, and it quickly spread through that camp as well, causing about a 7% death rate. As a result, Hagedorn, who was the command, um, one of the major Allied commanders at the time, shot himself. I can't even talk about it. It's like Harry Carey. I can't even talk about that. But that's what happened. What they were very concerned about is 
the way in most flu pandemics. It's usually the elderly and the very young that succumb to it. In the flu outbreak of 1890, you had the elderly and children dying at much higher rates than those in the middle from ages 20 to 40. However, in this flu, it was just the opposite. Children lived more often, the elderly lived more often, whereas people in the middle, 20 to 40, died in greater percentages. Why? Lots of reasons. Those were the ones that were more likely to be army recruits, military recruits that were crammed together in very close proximity, therefore they had higher viral loads. Also, the elderly people, had most of them had lived through the 1890 pandemic, and they decided it must have been some immunities built up, which shows that perhaps that virus had come and mutated into this new virus. And something called cytokine storms. Cytokine storm is a basically a nuclear attack by your immune system on a virus because people in that middle route have fully developed immune systems and healthier immune systems usually. A lot of them died from their own immune system. Cytokine storms because they basically dropped a, a, an atomic bomb on the virus trying to stop it and ended up destroying themselves. See, it had a lot of reasoning. All this was happening along the East Coast, and then it hit Philadelphia in fall of 1918. And Philadelphia was a perfect storm. Philadelphia was one of the most overcrowded cities in the country. It had become a hub for the Industrial Revolution. Uh, lots of people there, lots of workers, but not enough housing. So you had flop houses or halfway houses that had opened up where people shared beds. Literally, you had one worker sleeping in a bed. He got up to go to work. Another worker came in and went to bed without even changing the sheets. You had very a lot of poverty, so you had a lot of people, multiple families crammed in one house. They didn't have indoor plumbing, so they used a com common outhouse outside. So just think of the most dire squalor that you could think of. It reminds me of the Dark Ages, you know, with the people that succumbed to the Black Death. So you had great pickings for a virus because the city of Philadelphia did not follow the public health recommendation and lock down. They instead decided to go ahead with their Liberty Loan Parade that fall in which thousands of people were crammed in in very close proximity to see what was going on because they wanted to sell war bonds and keep the mood up for victory. And... As a result of that, 48 hours later, you had literally thousands of people with the flu. Hospitals were overcrowded. There was a shortage of doctors and nurses because a great deal of them had been recruited into the military for the war effort. And you had a huge amounts of overcrowding. You had this flu that was running rampant that was killing people within 24 hours. Doctors and nurses would be working one minute and collapse the next, only to be dead the next day because of the huge amount of viral load that they take. And that's why in today's pandemic, you need to save the protective masks, the protective gear, gear for your frontline workers. Off my soapbox now. But, so you had a lot of overcrowding. You had symptoms that you had never, and had never been seen before. Small microscopic holes torn in the lungs of the people that got this, which made their skin crackle like a Rice Krispie cereal when they were touched or rolled. There's a, actually a name for this. Crepitus. Crepitus uh, basically was a common symptom of this, whereas a nurse knew 
When they touched somebody and they heard that crackling sound, meaning that air had escaped their lungs and was building under their skin, that they weren't long for this world. And soon enough, they would be t turning the dark blue that a lot of people turned because of, they couldn't breathe. It was called the blue death in a lot of a lot of a lot of circles. In fact, they were. It was said that sometimes when they were sick, you could not tell a white man from a black man during this during this thing. That's how dark blue someone turned. And often these nurses would tag somebody with those symptoms for the morgue even before they were dead. Can you imagine? So it ran through the city of Philadelphia, killing 14,000 in a city of about 60,000. So that's a huge amount. There weren't enough coffins. There weren't enough people to bury. There were mass graves. Think about the most ungodly thing you can think of. There were a couple of cities in the United States that locked down immediately. San Francisco, California, St. Louis, Missouri had the least amount of de death and carnage because they locked down immediately. You will find that this flu traveled rapidly across North America. There was very few people except some of the most remote islands that weren't affected. In fact, one of the most heavily affected were the Inuits of Alaska and Canada, the upper northern territories of the Canada were also affected, and whole villages were left dead. So by the time this virus, the second and third wave, had ran its course, over 675,000 people dead in the United States, an estimated 100 million dead in the world. Now, this was the second wave, and by winter of 2018, it was gone. However, it would come back for one final foray in <clears throat> winter of, um, excuse me, of 1919, when it hit Europe one final time during the peace talks for World War I, and actually affected President Woodrow Wilson, who they say was forever changed. Michelle and I will go through a lot of that in our next, but that's where it ended. And still today, a lot of research about what caused it, about what kind of virus it was, and how we can stop it. Is, you know, COVID remains of that? We don't know yet. I, I don't think so. I think this was a brand new flu. I think at that time, in 1918, this was also a novel virus. They hadn't seen it before, even though it looked like it might have resembled the one that hit in 1890. Still, germ, war germ, germ theory and germ warfare was in its infancy, so we may never know. So, that's the story of the in short of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next time with a much more in-depth discussion with my friend Michelle. We've done a lot of research on this. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to subscribe to the channel, that's down below. Support the channel. Those links are below. As always, like, comment, share, subscribe. Until next time, Keto Golic.